Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. It is actually almost the middle of the night here, still dark Friday morning, and my return guest is uh, Virginia Latoura Jeker. This is Friday, February the 3rd, 2023, and we are here today to talk about a fascinating uh, decision that came from the Ninth Circuit uh, having to do with the taxation of income never actually received by a U.S. shareholder. Good morning, Virginia. How are you today? Hi, John. Everything's going well here. And uh, sorry to have you up so early to get this podcast going. Well, this is this is an important thing. And, you know, it may be pitch black here, but it's sunny where you are. So I think we may begin today with a statement, which I think will be proven true in our conversation that the sun never sets on the insanity and unfairness of the U.S. tax system. Would you agree with that? Well, it's looking that way. All right. Well, what brings us to this podcast this morning at this interesting time? Case is called Moore. But before mm-hmm. we get into the actual case, I think we should talk about the provision of the tax code, which has generated all of this, namely subpart f so i will invite you to begin with a brief discussion of what's up with subpart f okay well i think john we have learned over our many years of practicing uh u.s tax that anything with the f word is bad so we've got subpart f we've got f bar and i'm sure we have many other things in the f world that are not so cool So subpart F is another one that is not a good F word. What it is, it's part of the Internal Revenue Code that dates back to the 1960s. And what it does is basically taxes the U.S. shareholder of a foreign corporation on certain items of that foreign corporation's income even though it remains in the corporation and has never been distributed to the U.S. shareholder. Okay, let me pause you there for one second, okay? So what you're saying is that basically, simply by being a U.S. shareholder of a foreign corporation, you have to include the income earned by the corporation on your tax return, even though you never received your share of that income. Have I got that right? That's correct, provided it is this subpart F income. Okay, so so subpart F would mean it must be a certain kind of income. Then, What kind of income qualifies for this? Okay, well, generally, there's many categories of subpart F income, but generally speaking, items of passive income would be subpart F income. So if the, if the entity, the foreign corporation, was earning interest, dividends, capital gains, these would all be um, kinds of subpart F income, generally speaking, that would be taxed to the U.S. shareholder of that foreign corporation, even though the shareholder never received a distribution from the company. Okay, so so this has traditionally been, and from inception, really a tax on the investment income earned by the corporation. From that, I infer it, that the active business income was never 
taxed in this way. Is that correct? Um, you know what? That's really not fully correct because certain kinds of active income can still be taxed and qualify as subpart F income. So, for example, if if active business income has been earned by the corporation and the U.S. shareholder gave substantial assistance, what's called substantial assistance in earning that that income, then that can possibly also be a kind of subpart F income. Certain kinds of sales income dealing with related parties that are earned by the foreign corporation will also qualify as subpart F income. So those would those would be active income, but they can still be treated as subpart F income for purposes of the um, the tax rules. Okay, but absent those particular exceptions, just so that people can understand this as simply as possible, investment income attributed to the individual shareholder, even though never received, but generally speaking, subject to the, subject to the exceptions, the active business income would not have been attributed to the shareholder, correct? I would say that's a good statement. Yes, that's a fair, that's a fair okay. one. So if the active income is not attributed to the shareholder, that would have meant that the foreign corporation, in our case, a controlled foreign corporation, uh, basically would have been used to accumulate income that was never taxed from a U.S. perspective. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. And and the subpart F rules were designed with with that in mind, that they wanted to stop the use of the low tax or no tax jurisdictions where people would set up their foreign corporate entity to earn um, passive income and not be taxed on it in either the U.S. or in that foreign jurisdiction. So it's like a huge boon to be able to do that. And that's why subpart F came into effect to try and stop that kind of abuse. But, but of course, these, these uh, foreign corporations would generally be taxable in the jurisdiction where they were formed. So just because the U.S. can't tax a foreign corporation, that surely does not mean that the foreign corporation is not paying tax generally, correct? That's 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 true, but it depends, you know, if people want to set up in a tax haven jurisdiction with careful planning, they could try and get around that, so... Okay, um, but companies like Apple and that were, uh, were, were in court, were incorporating businesses in places like Ireland that did have taxes, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So let's fast forward now to 2017, uh, the, the year of the so-called tax reform. And what was recognized in 2017 as part of that tax reform was that a number of uh, foreign corporations owned by U.S. shareholders specifically controlled foreign corporations, had accumulated a lot of profits from active business income that had never been taxed. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely, yes. Okay. So as part of the tax reform in 2017, what happened was that the law was amended to impose a U.S. tax on the shareholders of controlled corporations to represent the profits earned by those corporations, which had never been taxed by the United States. Is that a fair statement? 
Yes, that was that was the so-called transition tax or the repatriation tax. All right. And 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 so effectively what was being done in 2017 was to impose a current tax on previously earned income and that previously earned income had not been subject to any kind of US tax at the time it was earned, correct? Correct. So it 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 wasn't being taxed as subpart F income. It was accumulated earnings and profits in the in the company. And they were looking at everything from the year 1986 onward. But for those years, 86 onward, for any one of those individual years, this income was not subject to U.S. taxation under U.S. tax laws, correct? That's correct. And so then in 2017, all of a sudden, the law is written to say, hey, we're actually going to now, in present day time, 2017, impose a U.S. tax on income earned from 1986 to 2017 that was never subject to U.S. tax when it was earned, correct? Yes. And this is why the judge in the district court in the Moore case, which we'll get to in a second, did, as part of his decision, state that this was a retroactive tax. That was that was the reason for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Now, before we go further with this, all of the almost all of the popular commentary on this has viewed this through the prism of uh, U.S. multinationals and not through individual shareholders, a.k.a. Americans abroad who run their dry cleaning businesses or their car repair shops or their yoga studios and all that sort of stuff. Right. Yes, I would say that's correct. They forgot um, about the little guy. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Well, not only forgot about the little guy, but but you know about individual shareholders of CSC as opposed to C corporations in the U.S. that you know were shareholders in CFCs, the multinationals, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, now let's talk a little bit about what the tax was. So we agree that the tax imposed was a one-time retroactive tax on earnings inside those companies that had never been subjected to U.S. taxation. But what's also interesting on it was uh, the rate of tax imposed. And uh, I don't, you know, again, I, you know, maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. But what was interesting was that there were actually, the, the rate of tax imposed depended on uh, really what the assets were in the balance sheet, right? That's correct. If you had um, depreciable assets in your business, then you had a far more favorable outcome than if you didn't. Right. So in other words, you know, if, if the company had retained, had taken these retained earnings and invested them in assets, mm-hmm. my recollection was they were subject to a 9% tax. But if they had kept the cash free for possible future business expansion or something, they were subjected to a 15.5% tax, right? Yes, that's right. So this is quite amazing. I mean, not only is it a retroactive tax, but they're picking and choosing the winners and losers by looking at the corporation's balance sheet, correct? Yeah. All right. Very, very interesting stuff. And so now people might say, well, wow, you know, that's a a really favorable tax rate because at that time the U.S. corporate tax rate was, I believe, 35%, right? I can't remember, John, but that sounds... 
pretty accurate. Well, it was certain, yeah, okay. So basically what this was, was uh, in return for a so-called move to a lower tax rate system, to a territorial tax system, which I don't believe for a minute they moved to because of the guilty thing. But the point was that this was an attempt basically to, a, shall I use the word, cleanse those previously earned profits so that they would never be subject to any U.S. taxation again, correct? Yes, correct. Okay. But again, now, we move this over to what happens to the poor American abroad who has to include all this income in his or her tax return. Uh, what's the effect of that? Or was the effect of that? What do you mean, when they pay tax on it? Well, they so from the point of view, I mean, let's imagine this from the point of view of an individual U.S. citizen in, say, Germany running a dry cleaning business or something. Uh, that person was required to include, you know, from, uh, what, 30 years, 30 years of untaxed earnings in his or her, on his or her tax return for that year, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I mean... Just imagine for a minute, how would you like to uh, all of a sudden have an income inclusion without having received that income of what could have been hundreds of thousands, or in some cases, millions of dollars, right? Well, yes, big problem. And that's what the shareholders and more were upset about. Exactly. Now let's move to the Moore case, since we've got a little background here. Uh, I would invite you to describe the circumstances and more a little bit. Okay, so basically we had two individuals, a husband and wife, I believe, who were um, bringing their case to court to get this transition tax or repatriation tax struck down because they felt it violated the U.S. Constitution. Now, they were owning 11% of a company that was in India, and um, they invested a certain amount of money, $40,000 in return for 11% of the company. The company ended up being a controlled foreign corporation because there were other US, US shareholders. And what happened was, of course, when the Tax Cuts and Job Act enacted this uh, repatriation tax, they had a significant uh, tax to pay. And so they are trying to get this struck down. That's the basis of this entire case. So, so in other words, what they had was an income inclusion, mm -hmm. an income they never received because of the subpart F rules, correct? That's right. I don't know that technically you'd call it subpart F. Well, it was patriotism. Well, you know, yeah. well, it's I part think, of the whole. It's part of the whole. Uh, regime there, okay, because the repatriation tax modified subpart F by classifying the CFC earnings, controlled foreign corporation earnings, after 1986 as income that would be taxable in 2017. So if this huge lump sum amount had to be taxed um, as if as if they received the money, but of course they didn't. Okay. All right. That's right. And again, you know, I think that a lot of, you know, tax preparers and that, you know, see all this in sort of very theoretical terms. And I want to emphasize that, I mean, just close your eyes, you know, if you're listening to this and imagine 
all of a sudden on your tax return, you know, having an income inclusion, an income you never receive, and being required to pay tax on that. I mean, that's a, a really, really frightening prospect. Okay, so so the arguments that the Moors made basically is, I don't think they're always entirely clear, but what's your understanding of what the, the basis of the lawsuit was? Um, they were arguing two things. First, first argument was that this, tax violated something called the apportionment clause of the U.S. Constitution. And let me just say, I'm not a constitutional scholar. I don't know much about this, but it's it's almost to say that you can't impose a tax that is a tax on wealth unless you've got a certain, how do I say it, percentage or apportionment among the various states that have agreed upon this. I'm not certain how to explain it. Maybe you can explain it better. Actually, I'm going to be honest. I can't. Okay. I don't, I don't understand, you know, really understand that particular argument either. I mean, I'm sure it's a valid argument, but I just don't have the, you know, the background. Okay, well, let's, let's, exactly. I mean, we're not constitutional law scholars, but let's just put it this way. A wealth tax has always been something that the U.S. has said, no, that can't be constitutional unless it passes muster under this apportionment clause. And we have never seen to date that that has happened. Do you think that's a fair statement? Yes, I do think it's a fair statement. Okay. So if we have this transition tax, this mandatory repatriation tax being viewed as a wealth tax, we're going to have a constitutional issue. That was one of their arguments. Their other argument was this um, violated the Fifth Amendment due process clause. Let's forget the due process argument. Let's focus what the court looked at significantly was this, um, this issue of violating the apportionment clause, okay? And when they are, the court's decision, to my mind, was not extremely well articulated. I was having trouble following it. It was all over the place. But again, now, it could now, Virginia, be. You're referring to, because I want to, I want to include the links to the various decisions in this podcast. At this moment, are you referring to the Ninth Circuit decision? Yes. Yes. Okay. So in other words, the actual decision, not the request for the rehearing, the decision in, I think it was June of 2022. Mm -hmm. Okay. Please, sorry, please continue. Right. So um, the apportionment clause, basically what they're saying is, is if it's a direct tax, like a wealth tax, it has to be apportioned so that each state pays in proportion to its population. All right. And that's why these kind of wealth taxes or direct taxes are troublesome, okay, because we have this constitutional issue. And just as an aside, so people can understand, when we have, you may be thinking, wait, isn't the estate tax a tax, a direct tax on the assets the guy owns when he dies? 
Well, they've danced around that by saying, no, no, this is a tax on the transfer of assets upon debt. So it's not a direct tax on the property. It's it's a tax on the transfer. So we have a lot of word games going on that are a little bit beyond me. Okay. So I don't want to delve too deeply into that because I may I may not be saying the right things. But when the Ninth Circuit was looking at this issue of the apportionment clause, um, what they focused on was saying, for example, that the taxpayer does not have to realize income in order for the tax to be constitutional and not violate the apportionment clause. Um, they don't have to realize any kind of income. So that once they say that's not a constitutional requirement, okay, where where are we? Where does that leave us if you don't have to if you don't have to realize income in order to be taxed? Right. Okay. Again, this is all pretty abstract stuff. So I just want to kind of reiterate uh, what what I'm understanding you to be saying here, and I, I think I think that that what you're saying does reflect what the court said. Basically, the court was addressing the question of whether this uh, was properly characterized or could properly be characterized as income under the 16th Amendment, I think. Um, and significantly, as you say, the court ruled that in order for it to properly qualify as income, to constitutionally qualify as income. There was no requirement that the income actually be realized, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, this is really extraordinary stuff because I agree with you that it opens the door to uh, all kinds of... Uh, a deemed income events, right? For example, and, and incidentally, Americans abroad are already experiencing these deemed income events. Uh, in the form of the exit tax. <laughs> yes, absolutely. In the form absolutely. of the exit tax, right? Deemed sale of assets, etc. So of course. Subpart F, guilty. It's all, it's exactly. all deemed, it's all pretend. And exactly. we have, we have some commentators you know, the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, they were saying um, the result here is that without selling their stock, these taxpayers and more, they didn't sell their stock, they didn't get a dividend, they were deemed to have received income, and they suddenly are liable for this, this tax, the repatriation tax. And they have said in their op-ed, this ruling upends a bedrock principle of taxation which is that to create taxable income, there must be a transaction or realization. That's what distinguishes an income tax from a tax on property or wealth. They go on to say that much hangs on the future of this case. If more is allowed to stand, Congress would have a green light to tax every U.S. investor in a domestic underscore theirs in a domestic corporation in the same way. There would be no constitutional bar to requiring that shareholders pay income tax 
on their proportionate share of accumulated and undistributed earnings of every corporation in which they, or even their 401k plan, hold stock. So what disturbed me about the op-ed was there was no recognition of the fact that U.S. persons abroad or who have invested in foreign corporations have been having this happen to them for, for decades. Their, their concern is look at the poor U.S. investor in a domestic corporation. Yeah, what yeah. is he going to be in for? Well, it's really extraordinary. I mean, I also see this as uh, I think you and I would both agree that uh, leaving aside the F words, all right, anytime, actually, the word foreign is an F word. Foreign, foreign is an F word. I forgot FATCA was an F word. Exactly. In fact, that's the seminal F word. Foreign is the seminal F word, right? From which all the rest of this stuff follows. But I mean, somehow, well, if it's a foreign corporation, nobody questions. You know, this kind of insanity, but oh my God, if we were to bring the same the same principle of taxation to the homeland, it all of a sudden becomes offensive, right? Yeah, this is this is what I found very disturbing about the entire discussion here. Again, putting aside the constitutional apportionment clause, because some of these things are just they're not my wheelhouse, right? But yeah, actually, Virginia, those types of things, are, you know, when this type of discussion starts, it obscures what's really going on, right? Anytime lawyers begin a conversation about principles of law, you can be 99% sure they're not talking about what's really going on. <laughs> well, there you have it. So, John, that was that was my take on more. Um I made a comment on LinkedIn to, to clue my followers. You know, I, I would invite you to read your comment into the podcast. I thought it was a great comment. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, it's not too long. So, yes, I will read it. And we can you can include the link if people are interested in that, people who might be uh, members of LinkedIn. Okay, so here's what I, I said. The Ninth Circuit case of Moore versus the United States may get some traction for examining all of subpart F guilty as unconstitutional wealth taxes. Personally, I do not think it will get far, but what I found most interesting is that the authors of the Wall Street Journal op-ed have ignored this issue for decades and only look at it now in light of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act transition tax. They are concerned with American stateside being hit with similar taxes on domestic corporations. Yet Americans owning foreign corporations abroad have been paying such taxes for decades without quote, without selling their stock or receiving a dividend. They are deemed to have received income. Per the authors, this upends a bedrock principle of taxation, which is that to create taxable income, there must be a transaction or realization. That's what distinguishes an income tax from a tax on property or wealth. Much hangs on the future of this case. If more is allowed to stand, Congress would have a green light to tax every U.S. investor in a domestic corporation in the same way. So there you have it. Well, I think that's a fantastic comment. I hope that that gets, gets wide, wide circulation. Um, 
as always, a, you know, a great conversation. This is a, a really, really difficult topic. Uh, I think it's been obscured by the fact that this is buried in the whole CFC foreign corporation uh, thing, but it's also just conceptually really, really difficult. Yes, and I think once people start to, once people see that it involves constitutional issues, you know, even tax professionals like us, John, when we see that, we tend to just steer away from it because the constitutional side of things is usually not something that we're dealing with. And, you know, it's a complicated decision. It's it's hard to follow. But I think distilling it all down to its essence is what I've said in the in the LinkedIn comment. That's what people should be focusing on. Well, I think that's exactly what they need to be focusing. And I think that the you know, whatever I, whatever tax community means, I think probably more the lawyers than, you know, accountants and that really have, have got to do a better job of calling this stuff out, you know, for what it really is, mm -hmm. rather than, you know, just sort of explaining how it works, right? You right. know, sort of a, san a sanitized way. I mean, you know, what this is really is, you know, if anybody ever bothered to look at this from the point of view of its impact on small business people outside the United States, it's really just one more confiscation of their assets. It's a very, it's a very tough area. Um, well, that was it, John. I think um, we've given people the lowdown, and let's see what happens next. I mean, absolutely. And if they want to read more of your great stuff, where would they find you, Virginia? Oh, okay. They can find my U.S. tax blog at www.us-tax dot org and i've got plenty of categories including one on the repatriation tax so people can read all they want about cfc's subpart act and many other topics of interest just go to the the page on the website that that has the category listing all right oh my god why don't i put it this way you can read about all things affecting americans abroad including if you can stand the technicalities the cfc stuff <laughs> I, I think I made it fairly simple in some of my blogs, so people don't have to be afraid. All right. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Virginia, for having this conversation today. And I look forward to the next one. And there will be many more because, as I said earlier, the sun never sets on the unfairness and insanity of the U.S. <laughs> okay, John. Thanks for having me.